peace, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. Well, Brother Goff, we want you to come take your liberty here tonight. Do what you feel in the Holy Ghost. God bless you. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. So good to be in God's house this evening. Amen. Good to be with God's wonderful people. Hallelujah. I'm so glad I know who Jesus is. He's more than just an old story. He is the King of glory. Hallelujah. I'm so glad that I can serve him today. Amen. Thank you, Bishop, for your kind words and for the introduction. I'll just do that. I'll take my liberty tonight. Amen. I'll join the church family on the floor. Hallelujah. Amen. I want to just follow the Holy Ghost and do what God has laid on my heart. Amen. I want to feel his presence even deeper, richer, fuller. Amen. This is not a game we play, but there are eternal consequences to every service, to every action. Amen. And I want God to reach down and touch us today. Amen. Hallelujah. If you could, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 18. Be reading a passage of Scripture very familiar. Hallelujah. Proverbs chapter 18. Many of you could quote it, you sing it, have it memorized. It says this in verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Amen. If you could lay your Bibles down, asking God to touch us this evening. Heavenly Father, we need your touch. More than anything, Master, we have to have you in this house God, we want you to minister to each and every heart. God, touch us. Let revelation, God, be fresh upon our mind. Hallelujah. I am just a man. God, and I need your anointing in this house, God. Take this word, God. Remove me from it, Master. In the mighty name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. I'm so good to be in his house. Amen. As I said, it's good to feel his presence. Does it matter the format of the service, the prayer? I do appreciate those that prayed Friday evening and Saturday morning before my family arrived that morning because it was rich and full and there was a beautiful presence of God in this house. And I appreciate your sacrifice, laid the groundwork for this message. I appreciate you doing what you did. I want to talk to us tonight about safety in a familiar place. Safety in a familiar place. As we read in our text, it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Now before you can run to something, you have to know what it is. And you have to know where it's located. When someone runs, it's just without a purpose. When someone takes off and all they're doing is movement to run from, all it is is chaos. Because you can have a tragedy happen. And you can look at these um, video clips of people having things happen in public spaces. And all of a sudden they hear gunshots and just pandemonium. You may have an accident and people just running every which direction. But you cannot do that with your soul. You have to have a purposeful steps that you take 
you have to come to the house of God. This is not optional for you to come in and just wander through, as Bishop talked about this morning. But you have to know where you're going. You have to know who you're worshiping. You have to understand there is a purpose to your life. Now, you cannot come just because you want to. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, it says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at that last day. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, many of you, may have had services where you've had your watch or your Fitbit or your activity monitor ask you if you're doing a workout. You look at it and you're like, no, I'm just having church. But the word of God tonight is to come to check the heart health of you, your soul. You have more confidence sometimes in things that technology and people impose upon you, but you must be willing to surrender and allow God to monitor the health of you and the church. You have to be willing to be succumbed to him saying, this isn't right or this is great. Look at how this is going. And it's all about a relationship. Because living for God is a relationship. Much like a husband and a wife, if you have instances of distrust or jealousy, there is nothing but discord and misery that will happen. Because if you have things that are just off in the relationship, Things won't align, and you'll find yourself doubting every time. And that's not a beautiful thing. You're questioning more about the relationship than you are building and living in that moment. But living for God, it's something beautiful. I've been living for God for a number of years, and I love this apostolic way. You cannot convince me to do anything different. You cannot convince me to accept any other form of truth. The only thing I want is a deeper knowledge of this truth. That is all that I'm concerned about. I want to find this truth, and it is a refuge to my soul. It is a refuge to a lost and dying world. And so we must have this relationship with God. You see, living for God is not about finding scriptures that fit your feelings. It's about following God's commandments. Because following only feelings will get you in trouble. Because feelings, guess what they are? Your perception. Add emotion with perception, and you have hurt feelings. And you get and you filter everything that you see in that very moment through your perception and your emotions through hurt feelings. You could also go on the flip side. Because you can have feelings that make you feel invincible because of your perception. Everything is going perfectly okay. I haven't lost. Everything is going in my favor. But all it takes, if you're living by feelings, all it takes is for your perception to be changed a little bit. And it skews you down a path you wish you had never gone down. All because of feelings. Now, there's nothing wrong with feelings because you have to feel after God, right? Happily that he may be found, right? But if you don't have feelings that are after God and they're after the things of this world, you will find yourself laying down things that are favorable unto God, commanded by God, and it's all under the cloak of identity of feelings. Because you can say, feelings have never let me down. Why would I change now? 
But you have to put feelings within the construct of the Word of God. You have to put them to where they align with these holy scriptures. And then you will find truth can prevail in your life. In Genesis, there's a few things I would like to share. We all view the story from Abraham's side. And we see through the lens clearly knowing that Isaac was born. We know that Isaac was taken to a mountaintop and was not sacrificed. Abraham did not have the luxury that we have today of that lens of knowing how things unfolded. You see in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, so 99 years, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, Abraham, yet to be called Abraham, but Abram during this time had had a promise from God. God had reached down and given him a covenant and reached down and told him, listen, you're going to be a father of many nations. It's going to come from you. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Number them as the stars in the heaven and the sand of the sea. Now, I know many of you just came back from a cruise. And could you imagine as you're standing on those beaches, white sand beaches, thinking that if God were to come and talk to you and say, Brother Hilton, there's going to become a great nation from you. And it's going to be as the sand of the sea. And if you were standing there, it would blow your mind. Because you know what you see is not just the limitations of sand. Because with God, it has opened up a whole new area. But God did this with Abram. And gave him a covenant. But he said something very profound. He says, I am the almighty God. I have all might in my control. There is nothing too hard for me. My power is greater than any other. No other God can we even come close to and compare. Because I have all power. All might. That means there is nothing too hard for God. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14 says, is there anything too hard for God? That's a question. Is there anything too hard for God? There's not, because he holds all. He holds everything. There is nothing that he does not hold. But in order for him to have it in full control, you have to give it to him. You have to hand over control. We have what we call a free will. And you can hold as much as close to you as you want. But if you want him to have everything, you have to give him everything. But we can answer that question. There is nothing too hard for God. When you serve the one with all power, you can have the faith of Abraham. And imagine, if you will, the words that Abraham spoke to the young boy Isaac. As he was growing up, we're jumping ahead in time. We'll come back to some of this. A little bit later. But as Isaac was growing as a young boy, no doubt it probably started as a baby. And the promise of God was a frequent topic. He may have said things, these are just my imagination, saying, son, the reason you're here is because the Lord answers prayers. He would also say, son, I want you to learn this very important lesson. Never doubt the timing of God. 
He may have also said, when he speaks, it will happen. And Isaac began to learn these lessons as a young boy. No doubt that Abraham began to share these words and began to convey them and help them understand there is a purpose for our life. We are in the rhythm of God's grace. We're in the rhythm of his ability to reach down and give us strength and to make things happen. But how great the things are that we as a church can say. Things like Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me, Brother Jerry. Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened. We could also say, I never want to live without the Lord in my life. We could also say, the Lord has never given up on me. These are things that are more than just simple blanket statements, but they are each and every one of ours testimony. We have to believe them because when we can say that Jesus is no longer the greatest thing, something else is allowed to come into our life and to become the greatest thing. And if you ever feel like God is giving up on you, the devil will use that. He'll plant that seed, and he'll start to drive that wedge, and he'll start to reaffirm those thoughts and say, yep, he sure has. He left you on this date. He left you to your own devices on this time, and he'll drive a wedge that will become great, and the end result is eternity because you allowed some things to come into your mind. Now, here is a mistake that is often made by those that hear the Word of God. They discredit the story and miss the lesson because it does not 100% apply to them in their instance. And they say, well, Bishop talked about Esther. I'm not a lady. I've never been a queen. I'm not that type. So I'll just let that apply to the ladies of the church. But there are things that happen within our life when the Word of God is applied in principle. We cannot discredit any word that God gives to us and we must apply it to our life because he's trying to make us more like him. Jesus used parables to resonate with the audience. And he did not preface them with, I know you are not all fishermen. Instead, he talked about fishermen. He didn't say, I know most of you are not farmers, but I'm going to talk about sowing. See, he spoke those words because it resonated with them. It meant something to them. So to discredit the word is to dismiss the ability for God to speak into your situation. Instead, Jesus used words that they could instantly apply, and they stood there and reflected and said, you know what? It is like that. It is like that. The words we say have a lasting impact on us and everyone around us. I'm thinking of an example of Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden that Sarah gave to Abraham. They had been in the land of Canaan for 10 plus years, sitting there waiting on a promise, waiting on Isaac that they did not know was even the name that he was going to give him, didn't know at the time, they just know I'm going to have a son. And Sarah rushed things. She says, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. Let's do things our way. Here, take an Egyptian. Take one that has been in bondage, and she's now our maidservant. And I want you to have the promised seed with her. And an Egyptian who no doubt grew up 
serving Egyptian gods. He was now in the house of a Hebrew family and interacting with that Hebrew God because in the first instance of this happening, we find that Hagar went out into the wilderness because she had been found to be with child and Sarah didn't like the situation. It was a mess that Sarah created and she was trying to fix. You see, this all cascaded around the situation to where Sarah tried forcing God's hand. And then when God did what she wanted, she tried pushing the promise even further away, saying, no, I want to have the promise. And we see Hagar, an Egyptian, out into the wilderness, found to be with child. The Bible says that Sarah dealt with her harshly. And Hagar fled into the wilderness. You know, life can be very difficult. And yet God met her in the midst of her deepest, darkest trials. And God spoke to her just like he did Abraham. He said some of the very same words that he uttered to Abraham. And Hagar was just a maidservant who deserved nothing. The Lord found her sitting by the well. It's interesting where she was at because the well she was by was the one on the way to Egypt, to sure. We know this because it was, says it was by before Mizram, as thou goest to Ashur. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, it talks about this location of Shur. It says the well on the way to Shur. And it refers to the journey back to Egypt. And it says, and they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur that is before Egypt. You see, Hagar was running. And she was going back to something that was comfortable. She was going back to something that she thought was right. We have to be careful because it is our immediate response to go back to what we return to as familiar. Even though we are burdened down with promise, we're willing to go back to what is familiar. You see, the instructions she received wasn't, Hagar, you have a promise. Keep going the direction you're going. But the words were, go back and submit. That would have been a hard pill to swallow. Brother Self, can you imagine someone who dealt harshly with you? And the angel of the Lord said, I'll fix this, but you have to go back and submit. You have to go back and be willing to endure. But you know you have a promise. You know you have a reason. God spoke to you. The instructions were not pleasant for her. And no doubt there wasn't something that she was willing to do initially. But she understood something supernatural was happening in the midst of her. You see, it was at that point that she received a promise that was very similar to the one that Abraham received. It says, you are with child, and his name shall be called Ishmael, and I will multiply your seed. And her response was this, in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 13, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. You see, it was the response of reverence. Something was recognized within her, and she called on the name of the Lord. There was something that responded. It wasn't about I'm sorry, I don't serve that God. But she recognized God spoke to her and stepped into her moment of need and made sure she had understanding of the promise. Now, the things that were said were not great. He described what Ishmael would be. 
He would be everywhere and amongst all people and not everybody would like it. But you know what? She still had the promise with her. It wasn't upon her to judge and say, no, I, I don't want that. But God stepped into her life and said, listen, go back and submit. And she called on the name of the Lord. What's interesting is she also says, thou God seest me. He knew exactly where she was at. Here's what I like about the story of Hagar. You don't have to have everything together in your life for God to step in the scene. You don't have to be absolutely 100% perfect for God to step in and make a miracle of your life. Don't listen to that lie. It's nothing but from the pit of hell. When you say, well, when I get it all together, then I will do. No, don't. Do what Hagar was told to do. Go back and submit. Say, God, whatever it is you have for me, I'm willing to do. Have your way in my life. God, I want you to have it and do it. Because I know it's going to be beautiful. I can't do anything on my own. I have to submit to the hand of God. When you have a divine visitation, it makes an impression on you. It changes you. It puts God's signature upon your life. And you'll reflect on it. And you'll step back and say, what a good God I serve. Oh, what a wonderful Savior I serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. And he chose, that God of all creation chose to come and touch me in prayer this morning when Bishop laid his hand on me. Who am I that I would deserve that God would do such a thing for me? But I have to be submitted to him. It will make a difference in your life. But Hagar said, you see my affliction. You see my sorrow. You are not alone in this. It is in fact that you have a promise within you is why God is talking to you. And if you're in the house of God tonight, you are in the very same situation that Hagar is in. God wants to do something great in your life. If you think that God would be so shallow, so simple, so non-observant that he would not know who's in his house, you're discrediting the power of God. Because I can tell you without fail, there has not been one time that someone has walked in my home that I did not know who they were. There was an introduction. Who are you? What house do you live in? Why are you here? Who do you know? And there was an introduction. I don't let strangers in my house. But as we read, you can only come to God unless he draw you. You are here because God is drawing you. You are here because God is reaching for you. And each and every one of us, God is doing this in different ways. And don't try to put the whole church into a bucket. But I'm here to tell you, God wants to do this for each and every one of us. God has a divine plan for each and every one of us. You, each and every one of us, will have our desert moments to where God's going to say, are you going to keep going to Egypt or are you going to come back and submit? What are you going to do with the promise? What are you going to do with the promise? Because not to jump too far ahead in the story, but there's a second time they end up in the desert, in the wilderness. And guess what happens? God's hand is upon Ishmael. God grows that young man, knowing full well that he was not Isaac. He was not the one that was going to be coming from Abraham. And the blessings of God would flow upon him and the 
just a nation that would come from him. That was not the case, but God's hand was still upon Ishmael. And the second time that this happened, Hagar was found in the desert because of her actions of her son. It wasn't her. The Bible says it was Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 21 and verse 8, talking of Isaac, the child, and the child grew, Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. In verse 9, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. I could understand Sarah's reaction. I could understand the reason why she's saying, listen, I just weaned Isaac. I'm not going to tolerate Ishmael doing what he thinks he can do. So much could be said about this occurrence. And I'll read a scripture in Galatians and we'll move on. But this is what you can talk about in this context. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 29 it says, But as then he was he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so is it now. You see, Isaac was a child of the promise that God had his hand upon. And Ishmael was going to cause nothing but trouble. And it was a war of the flesh and a war of the spirit. And God's hand is upon those that are willing to walk, not in the flesh, but after the Spirit. And God's hand is upon you even in this very service. That's why you're here. That's why you have a testimony. God wants to do something great in your life. You have to be willing to let Him lead and guide you. The voices of your past will always try to influence your pursuit of the promise. If in hearing those voices, you give them value and you place that upon God, you will be, as the scripture says in Psalms chapter 14 and verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You will say, there is no God. When he's trying to give you direction. When he's trying to order your steps and you say, no, I'm willing to entertain the things of my past. You have placed them at a higher elevation, a higher importance versus God trying to reach down into your life. What a shame that is. And we're probably all guilty of this, of saying, I think I've got everything under control. But we all pay the price and we all bear the scars of life from it. But this very phrase epitomizes a foolish man. For in the original translation, it does not say, does not give the words, there is. It was not there. The translators placed it there. You'll see it's in italics. But it says, no, God. The translators gave this to provide further clarity. However, the absence of the words reveal also a very accurate statement that we sometimes fall in that trap. By saying, no God, even though he's trying to give us direction. And someone who opposes the thought that there is no God. In the thinking of this very same idea, and a God that can orchestrate all things, whether they be physical or spiritual. A God who knows everything and is everywhere. And we can go down the list of all that God is. Would be considered a fool not to obey God because it is him who we should desire to have deep 
within our heart. And a fool counters all of this in his heart and establishes his actions to push against what he knows is right and holy. You see, the fool only has so much ammunition. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The revelation of Jesus Christ is foundational. If you try to remove that from any form of doctrine of any church, you remove the foundation, a sure foundation of a church that has been preaching the absolute understanding of Jesus Christ being in the flesh, God manifest in the flesh. You try to discredit and remove God from everything that he has said he is, you are taking away the foundation that God has laid for us. Because in him we have power in his name. In him we have salvation. In him we have all that we need is found in him. And Like I said in the beginning, you must know where your strength lies. And it is in the name of the Lord. For a fool to ascribe to the thought of no God is an attempt to dismantle their foundation. For to believe that there is no God is a position of damnation. And you will stand before a judge and you will find that he, Jesus, the chief cornerstone, will judge you. So those that try to discredit religion or try to discredit the holy word of God and say it's just a story and, and good for you for believing something, I'm telling you I believe the word of God because it is infallible. You cannot, in the words of man's wisdom, you cannot remove, you cannot negotiate your way out of this. This is the absolute word of God, and it is truth. You see, a foolish man, as I said, has limited ammunition. Here's the ammunition a foolish man has. A foolish man will stand upon a tower and has only things that are hurtful. But all the things that he has hurtful are also hurtful unto himself. You see, they will stand upon a tower and take stones from the structure upon which they stand to cast down upon somebody else. And in the end, they will cause damnation unto their own soul and destruction of their own devices. You see, they can only take those things that they possess because they do not have the promises of God. And so we use kind words. We use words of wisdom. We have to check ourselves when we're using cutting words. Those are words that's going to cost you just as much as it costs them. Because you are chipping away at the character of yourself. The more you use those words, the more you find glory in doing those. It's like being that foolish man that's standing upon a tower and having people hand up foundational stones so you can have something large to throw down upon somebody. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have to live for God that way. This way of living for God is legalism. You don't have to dress holy. And why don't you do it this way? And they can't tell me scripture and verse. And they start to destroy their own self. Just so they can try to hurt those around them. That is their only ammunition. They try to apply logic to things that are holy. They try to think their ways, their way through. 
so they can justify their actions. And you see, one's belief will not supersede biblical truths that God has established. Because beliefs that originate outside of the Holy Scriptures, guess where they originate? From man. Founded upon understanding is what man's are, man's ideas are. Their feelings, their accepted positions, uh, positions of understanding from what they're saying is truth. And finally, to wrap them all up, man's ideas that do not align with the Word of God. They try to take biblical truths and twist them so they can justify their own actions and to appease the flesh. But we must take those things and those people that try to have those divisive words, if they're willing, you take them back to these holy scriptures and you align them and you show them this is the way wherein you must walk. You must know this precious truth. You see, every time you drive into most modern repair facilities, one of the first things they do, you don't even know they're doing it. They'll walk in there and they'll check your car for an alignment before you even ask for it. They'll just reach down, put little cones on it. On the wall, they'll have a little device that's going to be looking at those sensors to tell you if your car's in and out of alignment. They have little gauges that your car will drive over and it'll measure the depth of the tread of your vehicle, tell you if you're wearing on the left side or the right side, your tire's cupping, are they too low? And there are things that just happen. The Word of God's the same way. The Word of God is reaching into our lives every service. Every time we crack this Bible open and read every day and go deep within the Word of God and we read these riches, God is checking our heart, checking our spirit. And just because you don't go to the service center doesn't mean you're not in disrepair. That doesn't, that doesn't keep things from going wrong. What it does, they just compile and compile. And the next thing you know, guess where you're at? You're on the side of the road. You're sitting there with oil that hasn't been changed in 50,000 miles. And it's just gummed up. The injectors are plugged up and you have no fuel, no power. And you're sitting there spiritually trying to figure this out. What does God want with me? But have you talked to Him? Have you reached down and said, God, search my heart? You can avoid this as long as you want. But there's going to be a day you cannot avoid this. Just like most people, or some people, they will not take care of their car and it starts to have that weird knock. Oh, time to trade it in. You can't trade this in. You can't run from this. You have to be willing to step up to the plate. You will be judged. This is not optional. But the Bible declares the Word of God. It has been settled in a place that is far outside the reach of man. In Psalms chapter 119 and verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Guess what that means? I can't modify it, I can't change it, and I don't want to. Because this is God's handprint upon my life. This is God's holy word. I want to do everything I can to align to the word of God. You see, the beliefs of this world, they try to liberate the mind. Bishop, all of these things, they go out there and they teach these lessons and people try to turn things so it makes it more palatable, more appealing. And all it is is taking and twisting this gospel message 
and making it to where it's more appealing to larger groups instead of appealing unto him. They try to appease others before they try to appease him. We cannot do that. You cannot apply logic alone to the word of God. Because if you try, what are you going to do when a miracle happens? You can't apply logic to a miracle. You cannot say, well, God must have, he must have done this and this. And, you know, when that person, Sister Shaw, was laying in the bathroom dead, he must have done, you know, maybe it was, no, it was called the name of Jesus. You cannot apply logic to how God works. You cannot apply logic to, well, he'll heal this one and won't heal that one. God moves and works as he will, according to our faith. To enable critical thinking towards the Holy Scriptures by forming opinions based upon logic alone, the moment you accept an errant doctrine, you are removing a foundational stone of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, from your life. When you accept that, and I've said across the table, from those that preached this apostolic message at one time. And they sat there with tears in their eyes. And they said, I just can't tell them they're not going to heaven. But that's not, that's not what we're called to do. We're here to show them how to get to heaven. We're here to preach this message. The problem is people that are willing to sacrifice truth for popularity. And people on the pew are doing so to appease the pew and not the master. Because God told us to reach out and to touch those around us. Not for us to try to build an empire. Because it is His empire. It is His kingdom. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 26 it says, And every one that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, the church, this church, was established upon the revelation of who he is. The strength of our foundation is found in Jesus Christ. It is in the name of Jesus Christ by which we do all things. We baptize in the name of Jesus. God heals in the name of Jesus. Sins are forgiven because we're calling upon that great name. And for us to take that away is ripping away the foundation upon which we are built. And we will find ourselves upon a house built upon the sand. It will not last. It may look good for just a moment but it will destroy itself as it shifts and moves. And it will not be a house that anyone will want to go into. It will be condemned. It will have the stickers upon the door saying, not inhabitable. You cannot come in here. But this house says, whosoever will, let them come. That is why we have a house of refuge. There's a place of safety. Jesus Christ is that chief cornerstone. And that revelation of that cornerstone is where we get the power to overcome Satan and his forces.
And now we come to the last part of the text. It describes how we benefit from the strength of a strong tower. But you have to believe in that name first. In Proverbs, in our text, in verse 10, it says, 18 and 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That's where we run to. It's because we're willing to accept everything that He is and His promises for us. And all of what we would say in our flesh, oh, they're too constrictive, they're too tight, that God says, if you want this, you have to be able to believe in the name of the Lord. You have to believe in the ability that I can reach down into your life and change your life. You see, you have to believe in the name first. We do not want to run to something that is not safe. As parents who have given instructions that if anything happens in our home, we'll say, this is who I want you to call. This is where I want you to go. There's wisdom in that. They have a sense of direction. So if something happens, these are the approved houses for you to go to. We know these people. We have their phone number. And as parents, I've done that lovingly and with care. And I chose those places with discretion and understanding who those people are. My children have their pastor's phone number in their phone. They have their youth leader's phone number in their phone. Because if they have to run somewhere, I want them to run to the church. As powerful as family is, I want to run to the church. As deep and loving as friends and family are, and they've known us, we have friends and family in our lives that have known us longer than most of us have known you in the church. But I run to the place of safety. Because not all the friends and family I have in my life pray. Not all of them go to church. They're going to speak from head knowledge, not from heart knowledge. They're not going to be able to reach out and touch God on my behalf. That is why I run to the name of the Lord. He is my strong tower. I run to it and I find safety. We don't want to run to something that is not safe. The Bible gives us the very same instructions. Whether you live in the same neighborhood or not, we all have access to the same place. The Truth Church of Olathe, Kansas. That is a place of refuge for us. Because truth is preached. It's not skewed for man's opinions. It's not meant to build an empire. But it's meant so that you will find Jesus in a deeper, richer, fuller way. And it will be built and founded upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will be the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Not accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Guess what that is? That's taking a stone from the foundation of a fool's house and saying, you don't need this anymore. Oh, you don't need to baptize anymore. You just need to sprinkle. That's taking a stone from the fool's house and saying, you don't need this anymore. Because guess what? Jesus said to do both of those things. So why will we allow us to, why would we want to remove him from our lives and the words that he said? David had a place to run to. He found safety there. David's life is beautiful. It's up and down. He made his mistakes. David had one thing resolved within his heart. I know where to run. 
I know where to run. Psalms chapter 18 and verse 1, the very first, last part of that, it talks about how David was running from the hand of Saul, and he said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. This is David with a king hot on his trail with an army after David. And David said, O Lord, I'm coming to you. I know where to go to find strength. I know what will lift me up and encourage me. It's the presence of the Lord. And you know what? David said a very, very profound verse of Scripture. In verse 2 he says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. David knew where to run to find safety. He knew exactly where to go. All of those things are things that David had to find on his own because he said, the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my deliverer. The Lord is my God. He is my strength. He is the one in whom I trust, the buckler. He is the horn of my salvation, and he is my high tower. David experienced that. That's how he could have the confidence to say, I can run to the Lord, and he is my strength. The psalmist cries out from a dark, lonely place, a place where you can't figure out what to do. I know I've been in those places, but I know this one thing. In those times, I have to have Jesus more than anything. In Psalms chapter 61 and verse 2, And from the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That is where safety's at. That is where your answer is going to be found. It is the rock that is higher than I. You know where that rock is? It's in Jesus Christ. That's where you're going to find your answer. It's through trusting in him. Oh, my. Take me to a place I've been before. Take me to a place that's familiar. Don't take me to a new place that no one's ever tried. But I want to trust in a sure place. The place that David trusted in. In the name of the Lord, he reached down in the time of need. And he reached down and touched every one of David's needs. And he was that fulfilled. Oh my. But you can't stop reading there. In verse 61 and verse 3 it says, For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from my enemy. You know what this is? This is David saying, I'm crying from the end of the earth and I'm going to a place that I've been before in the shelter of the Almighty God. He goes on to say, I will abide in thy tabernacle. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. I'm going back, God, to a place you have met me before. This is not an unfamiliar territory. There's no reason in your life to venture out and make steps you've never made before and do them without God. Because when you hold on to a nail-scarred hand, everything is familiar. Everything is right. Your steps are ordered by the Lord. But the moment you let go, you'll say, where am I? 
I don't, I don't, I can't, they vaguely familiar, I, I don't know. And voices will come and will try to give you instruction from years past. But you have to be in the house of God. As David, you have to be able to abide in the tabernacle forever. Not momentary, forever. This is what I like about this in verse 3. For thou hast been a shelter, a strong tower. I will trust in your faithful covering and protection. You see, David went back to a place that he was familiar with. It wasn't something that he's like, I've heard about this covering. I've heard about this God that can take care of me. I've heard about this God who's a strength. No, David spoke from a position of knowledge, of understanding. I've been there before. I know where to run to. He is my shelter. He is my strong tower. In closing... Jesus is that rock upon which we can stand. I'll insert David's name, but you can in your mind insert your own. David, it doesn't matter how dark the day is, because it says in Psalms 27 and verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my light. Of whom shall I be afraid? David, it doesn't matter how dark the day is. There is a light. And its light is the Lord. And he's coming to pick you up and give you direction. He's coming to give you steps and tell you, walk therein in this way. That's what he's come to do. David, you've been there before. And God will take you through. In Psalms chapter 28 and verse 8, the Lord is their strength. And he is the saving strength of his Anointed. You know who the anointed are? It's you. It says, it talks about in Psalms chapter 45 and verse 7, talking about the Lord. It says, thou lovest righteousness. Do you love righteousness? Do you hate the wickedness? Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. If you've been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, you've repented of your sins and God has filled you you are anointed of him. God's hand is upon you. His blood is washed over you and given you the grace every day to live according to his word. You can live according to the words that David penned and say you can run to that strong tower. And though the storms of life may rage about you, there is peace in his shelter. Psalms chapter 29 and verse 11, the Lord will give strength unto his people and the Lord will bless his people with peace. You are his people. David, it doesn't matter how dark that cave is. You're running from Saul. You're trying to honor him. You could take his life easily. David, this is a dark place. Everything seems to be against you. Honor God, and he'll be a light unto you. David, does it matter what everybody else is saying? What is God trying to tell you to do? Are you trying to run to that fortress? Are you running to Egypt? Hagar, I know it's a place of safety, but are you willing to run back 
to the name of the Lord. And Hagar stood there and called upon that name. God wants you in the deepest, darkest trial you may have ever experienced in your life. God wants to reach down and touch you. And he wants you to call upon the name of the Lord. There is safety in a familiar place. God is calling you to go back to somewhere you've been before. And last verse of scripture as we stand, it's our text. Proverbs 18 and 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. If you want to be safe in this time of need, run to the name of the Lord. There is power in the name of the Lord. There is nothing you can do on your own. Don't even try to make decisions with logic. Make them with prayer. Make them with counsel. Meet with your pastor. Reach down in the deepest part of your life and say, God, I'm willing to give you everything so I can have peace. Can we lift our hands and talk to him this evening? God wants to talk to you, David. He wants to do something powerful in your life, David. Will you surrender and go back to a place you once knew? Run to the name of the Lord. He is a strong tower. And the righteous run into it and is safe. Hallelujah. Can we worship Him tonight? Hallelujah. Thank you, Savior. God, you know each and every heart. God, we walked into this house, and you know who's here and who's not. God, I ask you to reach down and touch in the time of need. Hallelujah. You are the safety master. Hallelujah. Can we find us a place to pray? Can we find us a moment to begin to reflect back on our life? Asking God, am I in that place of safety? Have I run to the name of the Lord, or am I trying to do things on my own? You cannot figure life out on your own, but God can. He can reach down if you hand it over to him. He has everything under control. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's find a place to pray. Hallelujah, I worship you, Heavenly Father. Hallelujah, I magnify your great name. I worship you. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I magnify you, Master. You know my needs. Hallelujah, in this house tonight. I worship you, I worship you, I worship you, Heavenly Father. Reaching down and touching in every need, Master. We join in faith, believing, God, you're going to take care of it all. You're going to take care of everything, Master. I surrender to you, Master. It's not my will, but it's yours. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I worship you, I worship you.